My name is Omer, and you're tuning in to an Oats for Breakfast special broadcast. The interview segment you're about to hear was originally made available to our supporters on Patreon. We've decided to do a wide release of the segment so that everyone can have a chance to listen to it. So, back in March, Oats for Breakfast released an episode featuring Adolf Reed Jr., uh, and it was titled Race, Class, and the Left. That episode quickly became one of our most widely listened to tracks, and in just the last couple days, its popularity has once again gotten a boost. It's been shared on Reddit, and I think some other places as well. And as a result, it's been getting some traction. People have been listening to it. So we thought it would be a good idea to also release the second segment of our interview with Adolf Reed, which, as I mentioned, previously only our Patreon supporters got to listen to. Now, before transitioning to the interview itself, I do want to thank our supporters on Patreon. Our podcast is a relatively small operation at the moment. We have a limited budget. Uh, All of the work that goes into this project is done on a volunteer basis. We're still piecing together the equipment that we're using to make the podcast. So any funds that we're able to raise through Patreon go a long way. Uh, So for instance... We're still in need of decent quality headphones that we can use during our interviews. At present, we've had to do without those. Uh, As we get more equipment, we'll have an easier time making the podcast, the production quality will be higher, and we'll be able to release episodes in a more timely manner because the post-production stage, the editing of the podcast and so on, will go a lot more smoothly. So if you've been supporting us through Patreon, we really appreciate it. And if you're thinking about signing up as a patron but haven't done so yet, please do. It really does mean a lot. In order to become a patron of the podcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and sign up. As regular listeners of the podcast will know, Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. To learn about the work that the Socialist Project is involved in, you can listen to a recent podcast episode we did, uh, episode 16, titled, What is the Socialist Project? Okay, so let's move to talking about the interview you're about to hear. Uh, First of all, I should say that you won't get to hear my voice during the interview, Uh, While I was present for the interview, I was there mainly to help manage the audio equipment. Along with Adolf Reed's voice, the voices you'll get to hear are Sadia and Daniel's. The discussion in the interview deals with such things as the extent to which the prevalence of racism helps to explain Donald Trump's victory, the misapprehension of the transatlantic slave trade by academics and activists, and what the left in the U.S. can do to move forward in the present political context. I hope you enjoy the interview. See you on the other side. 
So what do you see as the potential of the U.S. left right now? Is there a role for the Democratic Socialists of America? Is there room for something happening that seems hopeful? Yeah, well, uh, I think there needs to be, right? And I mean, this is like the big concern. I mean, because uh, what the Sanders tendency did, right, was um, expose something, right? Like expose the potential. Um, it's significant that the identitarian main, mainstream of the Democratic Party came after it with both both feet and all guns blazing. And one of my favorite moments in the campaign was right before the Nevada primary when uh, Hillary Clinton said that, you know, my opponent wants to nationalize the banks or whatever. And she said, but would that end, end racism? Would that end white supremacy? And I thought, well, no, but it wouldn't end sunspots either. But it was like, do, do something to make people's lives better, right? So it's that side, actually, that wants this to be a class versus um, identity debate because they want to make, make a new political economy invisible. The question is how to move forward you know, after Trump's victory. And that's why I think one of the most important lines of argument in the state since then <clears throat> has been about how to interpret what was responsible for the Trump victory. Um, and the two lines are that it's all about you know the indelible commitment to white supremacy among um, white working class people, or um, that that it's not. And of course, those who want to insist that it's all about uh, the working class commitment to white supremacy are intent on characterizing those who don't accept that view as being weak on or defensive of of, of no white supremacy because that's the way that the argument works works for them. So one of my colleagues actually did did a very widely read piece where she purports to show that what motivated whites to vote for Trump had nothing to do with economic uncertainty, but with status anxiety. Like, you can separate the two, right? And the big um, conundrum for people pushing that line has always been the fact that between 7 and 9 million people who voted for Trump also voted for Sanders and for Obama maybe even twice. But, but the struggle going forward is how we understand what the cleavage lines are in American politics. And the more that we are inclined to accept that working class white people are more committed to sexism, transphobia, nativism, Islamophobia, and uh, white supremacy than they are to pursuit of their own material interest, then, then I think that just makes, makes the fascist position stronger. What I worry about is um, the, the potential of uh, like a kind of a straw man critique uh, mm -hmm. of uh, you were talking about Bernie versus, you know, establishment Democrats or right. hardcore Democrats. Right. And of course, there are more nuanced criticisms of Bernie. He said, um, I forget the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of he, he thinks uh, white, white voters, white people who didn't vote for Stacey Abrams and uh, Gillum in Florida, those who were uncomfortable with voting for them because mm -hmm. they're black right. aren't necessarily racist. And I, I think that's an absurd point because if, if you look at the, the numbers, the racial disparity is mm -hmm. so stark yeah. that 
it's it's I don't I don't think it's uh, possible to to claim that right. racism isn't a part of it. Well, yeah, but hold up a second, right? Because because when everybody was jumping up and down about um, uh, about Abrams having won the Democratic primary, and you may recall the rhetoric, right? It was like the first black person to be you know to win the nomination. If she wins, then she'll be the first black woman to be governor of a state in the South. I don't even know anything about what her politics are, to be honest, right? But a- anyone who's endorsed by Obama and Oprah or <laughs> it's probably someone whose politics aren't that great, well, right? And, so, and, uh, and that's what I understand about her. And look, frankly, like we could say this about Obama too, right? I mean, I I often say it's better to be lucky than to be good, and I was by accident basically in the birthing room at the outset of his political career. I lived in that state Senate district that he came out of. I was very close to and had worked with his predecessor in, in the seat. Got to watch exactly how he got uh, uh, the white liberals' panties wet without respect to gender uh, because he was like that, that, that sort of character. Uh, and, and actually, this, this book that I'm working on now started out as an examination of uh, the phenomenon that a number of people call called Obama mania, which is the circumstance that people who should have known better, right, not just good-hearted people who wanted to do the right thing or whatever, but politically sophisticated people who should, should have known better let themselves get swept up in the hype about this Clinton dipped in chocolate, basically, is like all this guy was, was ever. <laughs> Um, he was the Wall Street candidate, right? I mean, people forget he got more, more Wall Street money than anybody else in the race in 2008. And that's not because they were trying to atone for slavery. But, but anyway. I'm wondering, I mentioned before the term straw man. So I wonder, my concern is the potential for that. So I mentioned like Bernie. Right. There's the criticisms from the establishment Democrats, right. but there are also a little, some more nuanced criticisms. Also, you were talking about uh, Trump supporters who mm-hmm. previously voted for Obama. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming you know that uh, you 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 agree that uh, voting for Obama isn't exactly an anti-racist but, act. But by the same tokens, if voting for Obama is uh, is not necessarily an anti-racist act, which I grant completely, yeah. then voting for Trump isn't necessarily a racist. One, for sure, right? Uh, so I mean, I'll, I'll take that. So uh, right. you mentioned status anxiety. Mm-hmm. So okay, let's agree that status anxiety is was was a real really propelled a lot of people to vote for Trump or to take well, some positions. Well, that's what they claim. Yeah, that's what they claim, right? And I let's uh, let's take that at face value. Um, racism isn't necessarily. I, I, I think you you might agree. And uh, racism isn't always necessarily. I am a racist. I hate black right. people. I hate racialized right. people. Right. It's about saying I'm willing to dispose of some people if it comes to that. Like I'm willing to to support some things uh, that are terrible for whether it's uh, yeah. locking up Im- immigrants or, or yeah. this or that, whatever the policy is, yeah. as long as I get a little bit more money. Well, see, I don't know if it goes that way. Right. Or I, I keep right. my job. Right. I or, I, or, I'm, or I'm still a step above black people. Well, yeah, but yeah, well, yeah, look, I mean, um, uh, until Katrina, like when I would fly to New Orleans, I would, well, when I drove in along the interstate in uh, near Jefferson Parish, which is right outside the city, there was a guy who lived in a trailer. And I don't mean a trailer made to look like a house. This was a trailer that was clearly a, uh, a trailer with cinder block steps, right? And he flew a big car dealer-sized Confederate battle flag ne- next to his trailer. And you kind of knew what was up, right? This is what he had. So being white was that thing for him to hold, hold on to. I'm just saying that 
whiteness. And I don't even like to talk about that. I think that's a bullshit notion too, right? But being, being white or whatever the privileges are that, associ that are associated with, with a being white, uh, which vary a lot, um, doesn't drive people in their self-understandings and their lives and their practices in the way that people that study and write about it think, right? I mean, y yes, I mean, there are some people who, who walk around all day kissing themselves because they're white, right? But that's a pretty small percentage of the population. And, and I mean, beyond that, things are complex, right? Uh, well, but again, I think people have a whole lot of different kinds of identities, right? Um, people whose closest friends on the job are black and Latino might fight to keep blacks and Latinos um, as of you know, generic categories out of their out of their neighborhoods, or or will use percent of melanin in the student body as a proxy for for assessing the quality of the schools, right? So I mean that stuff happens, but the problem is that there's a range of practices and and of beliefs that's uh, well I wouldn't say it's infinite, but 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 it's vast. Right, that all get lumped together under the category racism, and I just don't understand what good that that does for us unless we're committed to um, to a discourse of atonement, right? Um, and that's Tony easy coach land, and I don't like to visit that country very much. Um, you're basically saying uh, this distinction between. Um class and identity is a false distinction. There's mm -hmm. no such thing really as identity. It's really just class talked about in different ways. Well, well, I wouldn't put it exactly that way, but keep going. Um, and uh, there are some people who use identity a certain way. Uh, right. Uh, they are describing it in a way that is like Coates, or as some people would describe Coates doing, uh, mm -hmm. as like this metaphysical thing, right? right. right? Yeah, I mean, it's Coates does too. He says it's ontological, right? right. You can't get much more met metaphysical than an ontology. Yeah, and at yeah. some, you've mentioned at different points uh, today, and also uh, in, in things I've read, uh, that uh, though people who talk about identity in that way, they are pushing a class position, but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's one that's against the class interests of the working class. Right, yeah, right? exactly. That's a different class position. Right. So, uh, or, or a position of a different class, yeah. What I'm wondering is, um, I've read a little bit of uh, Cedric Robinson. Oh, yeah. Who, who oh, Robinson, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, it is Robinson, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Black Marxism. Uh, yeah, no, no, uh, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I was just chuckling to myself because Cedric Robinson's main contribution to my life is um, you know, I have two close friends and comrades named C Cedric Johnson and Dean Robinson, and <laughs> and and he makes me stop to think to get the name straight. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of good people there. Um, well, so two at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Cedric Robinson, uh, he has this criticism of uh, of Marx as uh, not realizing or not uh, highlighting or underscoring the cultures and the ontologies mm -hmm. that, uh, as he would put it, the decultured cargoes right. and the slave ships, right. uh, uh, the, these ontologies that they had and that they brought over and that, most importantly, were the, the seed that led to the eventual collapse of the, right. the system of slavery, right? right. They brought, so the, when he's talking about ontologies, when he's talking about cultures, mm -hmm. it's not some abstract notion. He really is talking about- Well, it is about, an abstract notion, though. Right, but it maybe really that, is. I mean, he said it as a force in the world, but it's an abstract notion. Sure, but the way he's describing it, we know what yeah. he means when he says ontologies. Well, no, I'm not sure, actually, right? Because, see, I mean, to me, and granted, it's been a while since I read, 
read, read that book. I read it a long, long, long time ago, and it's kind of intriguing to me to see it become the thing that it's become, like in the same way that I was kind of bemused when C.L.R. James became the thing that James became. Um, but what I remember most about that book is that there's nothing that's even re- remotely like a black Marxism in it until the last chapter. And even that is a more about talking about individuals, like, I mean, Du Bois and others. And as far as the claim about whatever the ontologies were that, like, undid the slave trade, I mean, there's, like, a parallel thing going on, like a tradition of anti-slavery constitutionalism, right, that eventuated in the formation of the Republican Party, which in turn led to the election of Lincoln, which in turn led, led the slave-owning states to secede, which, which actually provided the pretext, what, I mean, the one pretext under the premises of anti-slavery constitutionalism for a direct assault on a slavery where it existed and emancipation. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I just don't... But I guess, mm-hmm. I mean, when I read the book, you know, I was thinking that if you think about West Africa and the, and the context from which real human beings were picked off and put into mm-hmm. a slave ship, there wasn't, it wasn't until they were, f- you know, put on the slave, slave ship that there was something uniting them. There is a complexity of different experiences that they came from. So mm-hmm. they wouldn't right. have said that there, right. that there is some, right. that we are all black or right. we are all African. You know, so to, so to ascribe a certain kind of a seed there that's, a, that's coherent and, and unified is to project something that doesn't actually exist. Right. So I just want to untangle that. So there's two, two points. Uh, mm-hmm. One, are there complexities in different types of, for lack of a better term, blackness? That's one question. The other question was, the, the point I was making is, by talking about something that appears metaphysical, are we actually talking about something that's practical? No, uh, no. I think when we're talking about something that that appears metaphysical, I think we're talking about something that's metaphysical, mm-hmm. right? Uh, look, I'll say this too, right? I, Ira Berlin's book, Many Thousands Gone, is something you might find interesting. It's a study of the first 200 years of slavery in British North America. And what, what you see is, is different patterns of so- social relations within slavery, different patterns of social relations like among slaves. And already by the turn of the 19th century, black people in, in uh, you know, North America had pretty much stopped, you know, you know, stopped referring to themselves as African because they weren't, right? Um, what, I mean, the, uh, the international slave trade was officially um, outlawed here in 1808. And yeah, ships came in until the 1850s, but by and large, like the the population of enslaved people here grew through nat- natural increase from like the end of the 18th century onward, you know, until the end of the institution. And what that meant is that more and more, since these people were, were here, they understood themselves to be Americans mm-hmm. and articulated their concerns and their aspirations and stuff in, in a relation to American political institutions and their own conditions, right? So, like, there's a tendency now... Um, to contend that we need to study the transatlantic slave trade to get a sense of the construction of African self-understandings. And of course, the problem with doing that is there's no documentary or archival evidence of anything that concerned the inner lives of 
slaves in the Middle Passage. But the response to that is, well, that's the reason that we need to study, study it, and we need to make it up, basically. All right, so on, on one level, that's, that's just like an academic hustle, right? But on another level, it's like part of an ideological project. And the ideological project is something like the invention of a national identity that, that's sort of read back onto the past. But the key is that it's read back onto the past to try to justify a political program for the second by claiming an historical antecedent for it. So we should be wrapping up now, but okay. I'm wondering... Um, I mean, my time is your time. <laughs> Uh, as a wrap-up question, so you've mm-hmm. written in um, class notes that the key fact is that we do not have the popularly based, institutionalized, mass political movement that we need to realize any meaningful progressive agenda in the United States. Right. Therefore, the principal task should be building an active membership base for such a movement. Yep. So how do we go about doing that? If the point of politics, right, uh, and the point of building the kind of movement that I think we need is to unite people around common concerns, well, then there are a lot of people who have these common concerns, right? And and, I've never understood, frankly, how how it is that we expect to build solidarities if if we start out by going around the room to have everybody explain how they're different from everybody else, right? And the notion that, you know, you can't talk to people who, who are classified as part of a different group from you has never been true in American politics, but it's not been true in history of the left. I mean, for God's sake, like um, the populist re- Republican fusion government took power in North Carolina in 1894 and, and was reelected in 1896, for God's sake, right? So it's possible to do this. The key thing is now, I kind of stressed earlier the uh, debate over how to interpret what the Trump victory meant. And this is a debate that's, that's going to be worked out, like, at, pardon me, at the local and, and the state level, and, and I mean, the level at which we should be debating and uh, contesting extends of stuff like this. Like, say in a state, there's um, a hack d- Democrat who has always been good to a particular union or to the labor movement in, in a general or, I mean, has supported w- working people's concerns, and a left Sa- Sandersite challenger want, wants to challenge that person, what should we do as a left or as a labor movement? And that's an open-ended question, right? There's no moral answer to it. And that's where politics gets what, that's what politics is, making those, those kind of trade-offs and, and uh, your decisions. Um, and it looks like there was a fair amount of that going on like in different places you know, around the country. But we need to have more of that and, and to come together around a political agenda that can unite broadly. And in the States... Um, I think the best option for that is the struggle for Medicare for all, which people are starting to condense around now. And there are several um, you know, different I mean, entities that are try- trying to mobilize around it. Now, you mentioned DSA earlier. Uh, I mean, DSA had, has had exponential growth, um, as, as I know you know, since the Sanders campaign. And in talking to some of my friends in DSA, I said, you know, this kind of reminds me of the exponential growth in SDS in the late 60s, and it was a double-edged sword, right, because a lot of incoherence and craziness came with it. And that's happened in DSA, too. I mean, there are tendencies within DSA that want to define what strikes me as anti-socialism as being socialism, right? The cult of the most oppressed, for instance, uh, and, and a tendency to conflate politics and 
morality, right? Politics isn't about who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, right? Uh, my hunch is that, I mean, DSA isn't going to be the vehicle, but it's going to be the gathering place for people who will move on from that experience to be part of creating whatever the vehicle is is we need. Now, implicit in the question was something like the third party question. Uh, I mean, I tend to think of it as a second party. Uh, and I mean, look, I spent more than 15 years as part of an effort trying to build a trade union based party in the US. Um, and people have gotten much, much more curious about that now. Um, I don't think it's a time, right? Um, I mentioned the birth of the Republican Party a while ago. I, I mean, my fantastic ideal uh, for what's going to happen is that the Democratic Party, like the Whigs in the 1850s, will kind of collapse under the weight of its own contradictions and something better will emerge out of it. But right now, I mean, um, you know, when I was working in, in uh, the Sanders campaign, we, we, of course, had a lot of exuberant young people whose whose um, emotions would rise with each good showing in a primary and fall with each defeat and and, and their rage against Clinton was, was just barely containable and um, I would always talk about Sergeant Pavlov at the Battle of Stalingrad right that your job is to do this thing that you're here to do it doesn't matter what's going on in Iowa it doesn't matter how many German divisions are down the road, right? Uh, right. I mean, your job is to hold th this building here and do it. And I think we're starting to see more people develop, you know, that kind of discipline, um, especially people who who have gotten connections with the trade union movement, because you learn how to how to organize. And, um, but I think the worst thing would be to, or one of the worst things would be, to imagine that we have options that we don't have, and trying to run out ahead of ourselves. So that's not an endorsement for Clinton 2020? Oh, man. Well, I mean, she would like one, I know, but uh, God. Uh, now, well, look, I mean, she was a dog of a candidate from the beginning, right? I mean, uh, just, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I can't look that far, right? But in fact, it was all I could do to get to last Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. If you haven't done so yet, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. You can follow us on Facebook as well. And you can email us feedback and suggestions at podcast at socialistproject.ca.